Welcome to Reliance's Sunday Sermon. Worship with us at 8, 9.30, or 11 o'clock a.m. We hope you're encouraged by today's message.
But the Lord said, Job, I love you too much to leave you to yourself. I love you too much to leave you to the smallness of what you know. But if God had not interrupted Job's life, and if Job had not walked through a living hell, we would never have heard of the man. But because it all shook down, and he stood and said, I love you. I worship you. In his darkest hour, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked his soul hates. So if you're righteous, he tests you. And if you're wicked, he leaves you alone. The last thing you want is for God to leave you alone. Lord, do not leave me alone. I have got to know you. I have got to see you. I have got to have you. And I want everything you've got for me. Lord, do not leave me to myself. Interrupt my life if you have to. Test me if you have to. But come to me. Visit me. Reveal yourself to me.
like everything that he has invested into them is being washed away by the sands of time and they are becoming something he doesn't support and he feels powerless to win them back and to win them over because when your children become adults they now have their hand on the knob, on the doorknob of the relationship and now all the rules change and it's just interesting to me that God would launch the Bible with a father who is in pain over his adult children the story of Job's life is so significant that God decides to make it the first book in the Bible. Meaning, it was the first book put on paper of all written scripture. As such, I call it the cornerstone of scripture. When God was looking to build this edifice that we call Holy Scripture, the very first building block put in place was the book of Job. When you put a cornerstone down, everything else in the building has to line up with that cornerstone in order for the building to be straight and true. Therefore, every book of the Bible has to line up with the book of Job. It's stunning that God would use the story of a father to become the plumb line for all revealed truth in Scripture. I know some people that wish the book of Job wasn't even in the Bible. I know some people that they're just like, uh, I don't think you can build anything on the book of Job. Well, don't let that throw you off. The builders are always rejecting the cornerstone. But God has put scripture, has put the book of Job as the cornerstone of scripture. And I think it, we need to pay attention to what God has established as the cornerstone. Let me remind you of the story just so that we're all of us kind of tracking on the same page. God picked a fight with Satan. You've got to see God as the one who starts the whole thing. God goes to Satan, or he says to Satan, have you noticed my, my friend, my buddy, my man, Job? This guy is amazing. He loves God. He fears God. He hates evil. He's blameless and upright. And God says to Satan, there's nobody like him in the earth. What do you think about my guy? And Satan comes back and goes, yeah, little wonder Job serves you. No wonder he serves you. Look at how you've blessed him. You've given him a wife. You've given him ten kids. You've given him houses and lands and flocks. You've made the guy filthy rich. And besides everything that you've blessed him with, you've got a wall of fire around his life. I can't even get close to the guy. Little wonder Job serves you. He'd be a fool not to serve you for how you bless him. But let me tell you something, God. Job doesn't serve you for who you are. He serves you for how soft you make his life. And I'll prove it to you. You take that wall of fire down from around his life and let me have a shot at him, you will be shocked at what you discover about your friend. I bet he curses you to your face. And God's like, deal is on. Okay? You can touch all his stuff, you 
you just can't touch him. And then one day, incredible calamity explodes in Job's life. Sometimes it just all happens in one day. In one day, invaders come, raiders come and steal his donkeys, his camels, his, his livestock. Fire falls from heaven and burns up 5,000 sheep. Postcard from heaven. A tornado moves across the wilderness, whirlwind tornado, hits the house where his ten children are throwing a party. The house collapses on his ten children, and all ten of them are killed in that one storm. All of his servants are killed. It all comes down in one day. This is more than chance. This is like hello. Job 1 verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. By the way, you're going to see the cross everywhere in the book of Job, and it starts right here. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. That's the cross. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is a time in life when you can't praise his works. There's a day in life when you can't praise his hand, when you can't praise what he has done. But even when you can't praise what he has done, you can always say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because when you're blessing his name, you're blessing his character. You are good. I can't see it, but you are good. You are faithful. I can't see it right now, but you are faithful. You are gracious and merciful. It doesn't feel like it right now, but you are a merciful God. And in your darkest hour, when you can't understand what is happening in your world, I have discovered in the darkest hour, you can still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the first mention of worship in the Bible because I'm putting this book in front of the book of Genesis, the first mention of worship in the Bible. Worship is not what happens to you on a Sunday morning when the Levites are on the platform. Worship is what happens to you on a Monday morning when the rug gets pulled out, when all hell breaks loose in your life, when you lose things, when life careens out of control, when you are baptized in darkness, when heaven stops talking to you, when everybody looks at you like Ooh, what's going on in your life? In your darkest hour, will you fall on your face and say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Round two, chapter two. In chapter two, God comes to Satan again and says, hey, have you checked out my, my servant Job? He's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he hates evil. And you stirred me up against him for no reason whatsoever. And you said that if I would let you have a shot at him, you said that he would curse me to my face. But look at him, he is loving me in the darkness of his perplexity. Na, 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 na. That's actually in the Hebrew. Just ask me later. I'll show it to you. There.
there's nobody like him in all the earth. Satan comes right back, skin for skin. And what Satan means is, you don't really know a man until you hit him in his body. You haven't let me hit the man in his body yet. You've only let me touch everything around him. But you take that wall of fire down from him around his body and let me hit the man in his body. That's where it really comes out. You're going to find out your friend will curse you to your face. And God's like, You got a deal. All right? You can touch his body. You just can't take his life. And God's the one that sets the rules. And then one day, boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And the way the scripture describes it, it seems that this affliction brought Job within centimeters of his life. It almost killed him. He takes a piece of pottery, parks his carcass on an ash heap, and scrapes his wounds as he sinks into the darkest depression that he could ever imagine. Depression is a normal response to loss. When we experience loss and loss of control, then depression is a normal human response. And there are many people in this room that have had a turn at depression because of losses in your life that you could not control. So Job has lost everything. He has lost his children. He has lost his livelihood. He has lost friends. And now he has lost his health. And it's not enough that the hand of God is on him and the hand of the, of the devil is on him. Now comes the hand of man. His three friends come to pay him a visit. And their intention is to serve him. They're coming to give him perspective. They want to help him. And they're alarmed at his condition. And they want to help him work his way out of it. And so they really are his friends. And they're really giving it their best shot. The big question in the book is why? Has anybody here ever asked the why question? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you've asked God why? There are some people that say, oh, you shouldn't ask God why. I am not in that theological camp. I'm like this. If Jesus can ask why on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he can ask why, then I can too. It's actually a very important question because when you're asking the why question, you're asking about purpose. God, what is the purpose of what is happening in my life? And the big question is, why has this happened to Job? There, uh, the book of Job is a staged theatrical production. You've got this stage, and on the stage, there are five principal players. Job, his three friends, and a young guy by the name of Elihu. There's some secondary players in the drama, but these are the five main players. They're on the stage, and then God puts you in the balcony. He gives them zero divine information and he gives you all the divine information. In other words, we've got the book in front of us.
we know the whole story. We know how it started. We see Satan and God having this, you know, this wager going on. We see uh, the friends and the whole philosophical drama. We see how God at the end brings redemption to Job's life. We watch it. For, we, we've got the script in front of us from start to finish. We know where the story's going. And they know nothing. And we're watching the drama. They have no information. We've got it all. And we just want to talk to them. Like, guys, come on. I can't believe you're so myopic on this one. Can't you see what God is doing? Oh, stop it already. What are you doing? Why did you say that? You don't even believe that. I can't even believe. My goodness, why are you accusing Job when you have zero information? And we just want to talk to them because they know nothing of the why question. We're over here knowing everything about it. We've got all this perspective. And then it's our turn on the stage. And God does something with our lives where he puts us on the stage, gives us zero divine information. And now it's like we forgot all the perspective that we had for Job. And it's like, oh, but this one's different. And it's our turn now. I see three explanations in the book for why this has happened to Job. The friends have one explanation. Job has another. And then God has another. The explanation of Job's friends, they go back for 20-something chapters back and forth in this debate. They're talking about sin and judgment and human suffering and the greatness of God. They get very philosophical back and forth for 20-something chapters. And their bottom line on it is, Job, you have clearly gotten heaven angry at you. You have done something, bro. We don't know what you've done. But this trial is evidence in and of itself that you have blown it because they have a very clear sowing and reaping theology. You reap what you sow, and if you have reaped this, then obviously you have sown this. But the cross shows us that you can suffer a cross without having blown it. And Job is a foreshadowing of the cross that sometimes you can endure a trial in your life that is not the consequence of sin. It's not the consequence of blowing it, but something else is going on in the story. But Job's three friends are persuaded that there is sin in Job's life. He needs to confess it. He needs to do business with God. And if he will, then he can move on with God. The second explanation in the book is from Job himself. And I'm going to read from chapter 12, verse 4. Job goes, I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him the just and blameless who is ridiculed. Job is saying in this verse, I asked God for something. He answered my prayer, and now my friends reproach me. Job, what did you ask for? 
Did you know that some of the prayers we pray are dangerous? Did you know that some of the songs we sing are dangerous? Have you ever stopped to look at the lyrics that we sing sometimes? I think somebody needs to put a warning label over top the screen. Sing at your own risk. Because we'll come to church like this and we'll go, fire of God, consume me. We sing dangerous songs. I believe in singing dangerous songs. I believe in praying dangerous prayers. And Job is going, I prayed a dangerous prayer. I asked God for something. He's answered my prayer. And now my friends reproach me. And of course, we were asking the question, Job, what did you ask for? The book does not tell us. So I'm just going to use my sanctified guessing. And I'm going to guess at it. I think he may have asked God for something regarding his children. The book of Job, it has two bookends in it. On the front end of the book, ten children. On the back end of the book, ten more children. And between two sets of ten children, the story, the drama unfolds. You've got to see the book as a father in pain over his adult children who is launched into a journey of spiritual fatherhood because I think there's a cry in his heart, God, give me my children, whatever it takes. And when he prayed that prayer, I think God was like, if I'm going to answer that prayer, I've got to change you because to reach a generation, God goes after the fathers. If we're going to have the hearts of the children turn to the fathers and the fathers turn to the children, he starts with the fathers so that he can target a generation of the children. And God comes after Job to transform the father so that he can raise up an extravagant and time generation. And I believe his second set of children are pointing to the end time generation that God is raising in this earth, in the earth, in this hour. So Job is going, I prayed a prayer. God's answered me. And now all of this has happened. His friend Eliphaz in chapter 22, verse 4, goes like this. He goes, Job, is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Eliphaz is basically going, come on, Job, let's be honest about it. Are you trying to say that all hell has broken loose in your life because you fear God? And the stunning answer in the book is, Yes. That's the crazy answer in the book. It's because of his fear and his godliness that this has happened. So we've got the friend's explanation, we've got Job's explanation, and now God's explanation. Uh, I see this one in chapter 41. Job 41. This is where God has now come to Job in a personal visitation, and he is uh, really grilling Job, and he says to him in chapter 41, he talks about Leviathan. Leviathan is the most formidable seagoing creature of Job's day. We wonder what kind of a creature was this? It's obviously now extinct because we have no creature in the ocean today to match the description. But some kind of a dinosaur-like 
crocodile-like, dragon-like. It's just, what kind of a creature was this? And God is describing Leviathan, and he's, it's, it's actually a very lengthy description. And in verse 8, God says to Job, Lay your hand on Leviathan. Remember the battle. Never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? And God is comparing himself to Leviathan, this creature that he has created. He says, I made Leviathan. If you were to put your hand on him, you will never forget the fight. And I promise you'll never touch him again. What about me? I'm the almighty God of the universe. What if you laid hold of me? What do you think it would be like? God is basically saying to Job, you laid hold of me. And when you laid hold of me, Job, you got hold of the creator of the universe. That's why this trial is so intense. That's why you've been shaken to the core. You've laid hold of me. How do you lay hold of God? I think you pray a dangerous prayer. At the beginning of the book, God has Job's name on his lips. He is saying to Satan in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2, My servant Job, what does it take to get heaven talking about you? What does it take to get your name on God's lips? It probably takes a dangerous prayer. Give me my children, whatever it takes. And now Job is on the lips of God. And God is going to use the trial to make Job into a true spiritual father. He's a spiritual father not only to his own children, but also to every generation ever since. He's a spiritual father even for us today in the room. How many in the room go to Job when you're in trouble, when you're in a trial, when the fire gets turned up and we find comfort and solace and strength from the example of our spiritual father Job. And the book ends in God's redemption. That's what you come away with from the book. God is a redeemer who writes redemption stories. And God wrote this gripping, nail-biting redemption story with his favorite man on the planet, allowing him to be absolutely crushed in every area of life. And then by the time the story comes full circle, he has ten more children. He has double his wealth. He is healed in his body. He has changed through his entire being. He has a spiritual inheritance in every generation. He is given the first book of the Bible. He becomes a signpost, the first signpost in history to the cross of Jesus Christ. You've got to see the cross in the book of Job. I invite you, the next time you read the book of Job, look for the cross.
Jesus because it's everywhere. I've heard people say, I can't find Jesus in the book of Job. It's the cross. That's what God put down as the cornerstone of Scripture, a prophetic signpost to the cross of Jesus Christ. And then the part of his redemption that is most sweet to me personally, he is caught up in glory and he sees God with his eyes. In chapter 19, he said to his friends, I'm going to see God with my eyes. And his friends are like, the guy is delusional. He thinks God likes him. He thinks God is for him. He thinks God's got him on a journey, and he thinks he's going to see God. The guy is flipping out. And Job goes, no, I got a prophetic thing in my spirit. I think there's a purpose in this thing. And I think before the story is finished, he's going to take away the veil, and I'm going to see God with my eyes. Chapter 38, here comes God in a whirlwind and talks to him personally and shows him. Job is shown the whole thing. He sees Satan and, and God and the wager. He's shown the entire story. And he sees God with his eyes. In chapter 9, verse 21, Job said, I am blameless. In chapter 40, verse 4, he goes, I am vile. How do you go? Yeah, keep it on the screen. How do you go from blameless to vile? How does that happen? He saw something. When Job saw God, all of his self-congratulatory concepts of who he was melted in the presence of the magnificence and the holiness of God. And he goes, I am vile. Jesus, would you give me this kind of a vision of your glory? Would you strip away from me all this self-congratulatory stuff that thinks I'm such a pious, together person. I want to be so immersed in the glory of who you are that it levels me, that it puts me on my face, and I go, I am vile in the presence of your holiness. And could it be that God's purpose in the trial to bring you into spiritual fatherhood is to give you such a revelation of his holiness and his glory that it will imprint something into your spirit that will transform a generation. The New Testament interpretive key for the book of Job is James 5.11. It's the only mention of Job in the New Testament, and it gives for us a lens from which, with which to look at the book. They're going to give it on the screen. Job 5.11, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. When you look, and keep it on the screen for a moment, when you look at the cross, there is an intended end for the cross. The Father did not intend for Jesus to just do the cross, end of chapter. It was unto resurrection, and God's intention.
fortune in Job's life was not only to take everything away from him. It was his intention to write a redemption story and give him so much more than he ever had because of the tragedy of the story. It's called the redemption story. God still is a redeemer, and he still writes redemption stories. And I'm after this with all my heart. I have a little bit of personal connection to Job because I've suffered some losses in life. And I'm looking at this going, Jesus, Redeemer, would you write a redemption story right here? That's why I'm enduring in faith. Keep the, the verse on the screen just a little bit longer because it's about enduring in faith, enduring in love. When you're in a fiery trial, this is what we're called to. I'm going to love you. I'm going to come after you. I'm going to hold to your word. I'm going to stay in your promises because those that endure, the Lord is merciful and compassionate. Job did not come through the trial because he was so good. He came through the trial in spite of himself. He came through the trial in spite of his weakness, in spite of the fact that he said things about God that weren't true, in spite of his brokenness. It was the mercy of God. Lord Jesus, make me a vessel of mercy. Have mercy upon my soul because all I know to do is give you my love. All I know to do is endure in faith and love. But I'm broken. I'm blowing it all the time. And he says, if you will endure in your trial, I will have mercy upon you and I will bring you to your intended end. I have a personal outline for the book of Job. This is my own personal outline, the way I outline the book. I've got three parts to the book, three tornadoes. It starts off chapters one and two with Satan's tornado, represented by the tornado of Satan that came and and took the lives of his ten children. Part two is chapters 3 to 37, where Job's three friends enter into a dialogue and a debate that's like a relational tornado that just, it's very intense. But if you have been visited by Satan's tornado, and if you have been visited by man's tornado. Could it be that you are in line for God's tornado? Because God comes to Job in chapter 38. This is what he had been loving for. This is what he'd been praying and holding out for. And God comes to him. And in the presence of God, Job has no more questions. Every question is silenced. And now in the presence of his glory, and from this day forward, his kids go, my dad saw God. What would it be like to have kids with that kind of testimony? Is there anybody in this room whose kids can say, my dad saw God? Now the pool's too small on that question. Is there anybody in Kansas whose kids can say, my dad saw God? I got the pool too small on that one. Is there anybody in America whose kids can say, my dad saw God. It's the hope of my heart. It's everything I'm living for. It's the reason I get up in the morning. It's the reason for everything that I do. I am fighting for a testimony that 
children one day will be able to say, my dad's not God. I want to see you. I want to know you. And for this, I will endure all my days until you finish writing my story. I prayed a dangerous prayer. I'm going to tell you the story. First service didn't have time for this. You really want to do second service. That's just an ad. I put an ad in for second service. I'm 35 years old. Thirty-five years old, I'm pastoring a church in the Rochester, New York area, and the blessing of the Lord is on the church. We're growing. I've written a book exploring worship. It's going around the world. I'm kind of a golden boy in one sense. really do anything wrong. My elders love me. Church loves me. In our little denomination, we're kind of the up-and-coming church. It was my practice in those days. I would come to our building early in the morning, get there usually by 6 o'clock, and it would be just me. And I'd sit at the keyboard, put my Bible on the music stand, and sing and pray just what I did. This one morning, I got to back up. I got ahead of myself in the story. Let me back up just a minute. After this happened to me, it's about six months into the trial. I'm still pastoring the church. And a sister, it's at the end of the Sunday service. Everybody's walking out. And a sister that has a prophetic gift, she says to me, you ask God for something, and he's answered your prayer. And then she kept going. I asked. God for something. And he's answered my prayer. What did I ask for? Whatever it was, I take it back. I didn't know what I asked for. And so, but something was like, I, I think that might be the Lord. So I'm talking to the Lord about, like, Lord, what did I ask for? And the Lord reminded me of something that I'd totally forgotten about it. It was, I think, maybe two, three months earlier. I just had forgotten about it. It was my practice in those days to come to our sanctuary in the morning and sit at the keyboard and sing and pray. And I'd walk around the sanctuary. I'd lay hands on all the chairs and pray over all the names in our church. It was just, I had my own time with the Lord. So this one morning, I'm worshiping, praying, and a song comes to mind. I think there's a couple folks in the room with gray hair that may recognize the lyrics to this song. A song comes to mind. The lyrics go like this. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. 
by faith on heaven's tableland, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Wave at me if you recognize the lyrics. I've got a few hands on that one. And as when that song came to mind, I started to sing it. The, the tears began to flow. I went to my library, I got a hymnal, opened up the hymnal, began to sing all the verses. And as I'm singing the song, the tears are flowing, and there's a cry in my heart. Lord, I know there's more. I know there's more than I'm experiencing. When I look at the ministry of Jesus, there's so much more than what I'm, what I'm touching. But I can't touch it. I was at a place in my life, maybe you can understand some of you, I was 35, I was running as hard as I knew to run, I was getting up early in the morning, laboring till late into the evening, trying to father a young family, I was given the kingdom of God everything that I had, I felt like a guy that was juggling balls, and if they throw one more ball at me, I'm going to lose the whole thing, because I was at maximum output, I had nothing more to offer, and giving it my everything, I was falling so short of what I saw in the Word of God. And a realization, if I'm going to touch what is available in the kingdom, I can't get there myself. I am helpless. Lord, if you don't lift me up, I can't get there. Lift me up. Let me stand by faith on heaven's tableland, a higher plane than I have found. Plant my feet on higher ground. I didn't know it, but I was praying a dangerous prayer. The tears were flowing. I went home. The next day, I came by, and thus the same tears, and then I forgot about it. But God did not forget that cry. He doesn't forget the cry of the desperate heart. And when God hears the cry of a hungry heart, he says, I'm going to hear that, and I'm going to engage with you. And I believe that my journey is actually the consequence, in part, of a dangerous prayer that I offered to God. And now I'm in this thing to the very end. I want to see your redemption, Lord. So I'm going to endure in faith and in love until you finish what you have started in my life. Now I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come. They're going to lead us in a song that's actually from the book of Job. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I invite you to join us in singing from the book together. And as we engage with the Lord in response, it could be that there's somebody in the room today, you have prayed a dangerous prayer. You have put all the chips on the table and you have given yourself, you have gone all in with the Lord. They're going to wait until I finish here on the mic. You've given everything. And today there is comfort and strength for you in the Holy Spirit. He says, I've got a purpose. I'm going to redeem in your life. And he's calling you to endure and to lay hold of the purpose and the upper call of God. There may be others in the room that you're like, Lord, would you have me to pray a dangerous prayer? Would you have me to put it all out there? Give me my children. Give me my family. I've got to have more of you, Jesus. I've got to see you. I've got to know you. I've got to be closer to you. Whatever it takes, I cannot live with middle American Christianity. I have 
deliver me from the comforts of what I've known and give me, Lord Jesus, the fullness of your purpose and your kingdom. Is this? I've got the click track in my ears if we can maybe just take it off for a moment. Yeah, that, that was very strong for me. Thank you. As we sing this song, your, the invitation is for you to stand, lift your hands, and respond to the Lord in worship. But I want to give you also the freedom, if you want to do this, to make an altar here in the front. There may be somebody that for you, this would be a moment for you to come and just lay it out at the altar and give him your heart. Let the tears flow as you abandon yourself to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus had to do the cross to enter into the fullness of his glory, then those that follow him also have a journey with the cross. And you are invited today to pour your heart out unto him, put it all on the altar, and give him your love. May you have grace to endure in your journey, and may you lay hold of the redemption of God. May he write a redemption story with your life. And may your children say, my dad saw God. Thanks for tuning in today. To find out how to get more involved, go to reliancecommunity.org. Have a great week.